Good morning and welcome to Trinity Heights Church. Thank you for joining us again for our virtual service. And here we are in our third part of our series, which we have titled How to Plant a Church Again. So let me quickly recap where we've been so far. Uh, we've been thinking about the incarnation, God becoming flesh. And we've been reflecting on what it might mean for us as the church to follow the pattern of the incarnation. If God enters into human culture, how might we enter into our own? Because communication of the good news of Jesus Christ to the world around us depends upon it. Of course, just because we uh, enter into our culture and enter into meaningful discourse with our culture doesn't mean that we sort of buy into everything our culture happens to be doing at the time. Because John points to a conflict that is present in every single human culture. And he speaks about this conflict in these broad categories of light and darkness. The light that gives light to all men was coming into the world, John says. The light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Taking John's categories seriously, we can't afford to have a naive, sanitized view of our own culture. And so part of the hard work is actually identifying those parts of the culture which there's an affinity and, and the gospel can actually affirm those parts of the culture uh, and then identifying those parts of the culture which just militate against the Christian narrative. So this week I want to look at a case study which will bring together the different strands of everything that we've been saying. I want to reflect on the work of someone who is particularly gifted at communicating the good news in a, in a rapidly secularizing context similar to our own. And this someone was also so familiar with the wider cultural discourse that he was able to make a significant contribution to the broader culture itself, while at the same time maintaining a distinctively Christian voice and perspective. So think of this as a sort of applied theology. It's an exploration of some of the, the, the practicalities, practices and applications of the theological vision that we've been exploring in John chapter one the last two weeks. As I said, when we began this series, keep John chapter one close at hand, read it and reread it, keep reading it, um, consider it in all its nuances because this is a passage that is going to be informing everything we do at Trinity Heights. The first book I read of Christian apologetics was when I was an agnostic. I was looking for some other books actually and this elderly gentleman standing next to me, um, I'd met him once before, his name was Ray Griffiths and Ray pulled down a book off the shelf and he said here you should read this and so for some reason I did. The book was Mere Christianity by the author C.S. Lewis. Now, I didn't know who C.S. Lewis was at the time, but over the years, I discovered that he was a well-loved and much-respected Christian apologist. And of course, the author of the beloved children's books, the Narnia Chronicles. Lewis was an Oxford Don, a quiet academic, not looking for celebrity, but as it would happen, he soared to fame with his radio BBC wartime talks, which made him one of the most recognized voices in Britain at the time. But it was 1947, shortly after the war, 
that might be seen as the sort of the tipping point which signaled Lewis's arrival on the broader cultural scene. In September of that year, Lewis appeared on the front cover of Time magazine, which described him as the best-selling author of the, and the most popular lecturer at Oxford University and one of the most influential spokesmen for Christianity in the English-speaking world. He hated the article, of course, and sometimes his popularity hindered the, his own academic progress of his own academic career. Parts of the academy sort of frowned on, on that kind of populism. But as I said, I didn't know any of this at the time. Uh, the book that was handed to me that day was Mere Christianity, and I took it home and I started reading it that night. And I kept on reading it. I read it till the early hours of the morning. I was amazed because it was the first time that Christianity started to make sense to me. It was the first time the idea that there might be a God didn't seem to be just based on totally blind faith, but it appeared surprisingly reasonable. And I started to find it more compelling than the position I had occupied so far as an agnostic. Have you ever read a book that has changed your life or watched a play or movie that has shifted your consciousness or, or seen a painting that gave you a new perspective? Well, this was certainly one of those moments for me. And as I would discover later on, it's been one of those moments for countless others. It's just one of those books that has played a very significant role in leading many, many people into the Christian story. Over the years, I've thought about what made that book so compelling to me and to so many others. Of course, Lewis was writing for an earlier generation. I mean, it was written in the 1940s and I was reading it in the 1990s, so it was, it was already dated back then. We certainly uh, wouldn't say it exactly the same way he did, but it's worth asking, you know, what are the underlying principles that made him such an effective communicator in a rapidly secularizing culture? What are the ideas which sort of undergirded his work, which can serve as a, a very practical example of putting John's incarnational theology into practice in the life of our church in the context of our own culture? First of all, there are some observations about Lewis' own journey from atheism to Christianity, which would deeply influence his own approach to the way he went about communicating the good news. He was an avowed atheist, but he had one or two friends who were Christians, also teachers at Oxford. One of those friends, as you might know, was J.R.R. Tolkien, author of Lord of the Rings. And it's really interesting. I found out recently that C.S. Lewis had played a pivotal role in helping Tolkien bring Lord of the Rings to completion. And Tolkien had played an, a, a pivotal role in bringing Lewis to Christian faith. And so Lewis recalls one late night conversation in particular with, with Tolkien, which went on into the early hours of the morning. Lewis biographer Alistair McGrath points out that it was a really significant moment for Lewis because in that conversation, Tolkien helped Lewis to realize that the problem lay not in Lewis's rational failure to understand Christian theory, but in his imaginative failure to grasp its significance. The issue was not primarily about truth, but about meaning. When engaging the Christian narrative, Lewis had been limiting himself to his reason, 
but he had to open himself up to the deepest intuitions of his imaginations. Now, I want to be clear. This does not mean that we throw reason out the window, but it is a recognition of the vital role that imagination plays in organizing and accessing the realities of human experience. So it's not about checking your brains at the door, but perhaps more about using another part of our brain. And this is actually true for any area of exploration, whether it be theology or the social sciences or the natural sciences. So for example, most philosophers of science recognize that science never gets very far with reason alone. Science has always required intuition and leaps of the imagination. This is something that's been recognized more widely and explicitly since Thomas Kuhn's work in the 1970s. But it's actually an idea that we can trace all the way back to the 17th century empiricists, the first one being Francis Bacon. Bacon wanted science to move along in an objective and almost mechanical way. But even he knew that the, the empirical methods he was proposing absolutely needed the fuel of human tuition and imagination, and that without it, the scientific project would never get going. So again, just to be clear, uh, what we're saying here, it's, it's not to throw reason out, but it is to allow imagination in. And that's what Tolkien did. He helped Lewis to grasp the imaginative appeal of Christianity. And this did not take the form of an understanding of the individual elements of Christian faith, such as the core doctrines or the creeds. Rather, Lewis came to appreciate the comprehensive view of reality that he found in the Christian faith. For the first time, Lewis saw the big picture that Christianity was offering. It was a big picture which takes the different strands of human experience, all our human longing for truth, and beauty and goodness and weaves them together into a compelling pattern and provides these longings and experiences with new potential. As Lewis famously put it, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And then only after he had accessed the overarching Christian story in this way, did he then experience a process of intellectual clarification and crystallization during which the more specific doctrinal aspects of his faith finally fell into place. But this, this was secondary. Um, this was something that he came to after he had already apprehended and appreciated Christianity primarily through the imagination. Think for a moment of that book you read, which, which you thought, which we thought about earlier, which, which just changed your life. That book that changed your life, that piece of music that shifted your consciousness, that painting that gave you a brand new perspective. Once you've been captured by that book or music or painting, you can then go and read the literary theorists who disassemble the book and put it all back together again and maybe give you another lens through which to read it. Um, or that piece of music, you, you might go and learn to read sheet music and study musical theory. 
or perhaps with a painting, you might go and read up about the artist or even study art history and come to an understanding of how one artist is, is uh, uh, communicating or responding to another artist, or, or maybe you will even learn to paint yourself. And by doing all this, you will come to appreciate the different aspects of painting or of that painting or the book or that piece of music in a brand new way. But you don't start there. Books, music, art, they capture our imagination first. And if that never happens, then the artistic endeavor has failed. I mean, what is the point of the rest? You know, I sometimes wonder if the church has started with the specifics, the, the theological propositions, the sort of doctrinal claims. There is a creator. There is an afterlife. You can go to heaven. Christ died for you. You're a sinner. Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus rose from the dead. We start with these specifics and people sort of get bogged down with trying to make sense of these claims intellectually, but abstracted from the bigger picture. And so intellectually, they can't make sense of an individual piece. It's the equivalent of sort of never listening to Beethoven's Fifth, but studying all the music theory. It's the equivalent of reading all the literary theorists, but never having read the book. It's the equivalent of listening to the, the art critics, but having never once even glanced at the painting. It's a detached intellectual exercise looking at abstracted or, or sort of disassembled pieces. This is why at Trinity Heights, we don't start with the question, what happens when you die? But as many of you know, we encourage people to begin somewhere else. We ask the question, what does it mean to be human? We want to start with the human longings of the heart and from there, tell the story that weaves them all together. So because this was how Lewis came to faith himself, this was his journey, when he starts to write the series of talks that would later become the book Mere Christianity, Lewis does not start out with a set of Christian propositions. Uh, here's what we believe as Christians. Do you believe this too? He, he doesn't take formal Christian belief and then try to defend it and lay out all the evidence. It, it's not to say that there isn't all sorts of evidence that can be marshaled in defense of these specifics. For example, there's an avalanche of historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But Lewis doesn't begin there. He begins instead with an appeal to the human imagination. His book does not start with the proposition, God exists, or Jesus is God incarnate, or Jesus rose from the dead, and then sort of lay out the deductive arguments for these truth claims. As someone's pointed out, he makes us think we are listening to deductive arguments, but in reality, we are presented with a vision. And it is the vision that carries conviction. Appealing to human longing for truth and beauty and goodness, what Lewis does is he shows us the potential for those things, the potential for truth and beauty and goodness within the Christian narrative. John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Perhaps part of what it means to dwell among our friends, to dwell in our culture, is to take seriously the deeper longings that our culture has for truth and beauty and goodness. 
So we don't start with an appeal to pure reason, whatever that might be, but with an appeal to the imagination. We don't start with a set of propositions or truth claims. Here's what we believe. Do you believe it? I can defend each one of these truth claims intellectually. Here's all the evidence for it. Instead, we tell the story and we invite people to imagine their own life within that story. What if you tried life out here? Come, come and stand over here and see what the lo world looks like from over here. So I'll leave you with this question. Can we tell this story or paint the picture so that it weaves together the longings of the human heart in such a way that even if someone feels, look, this isn't true, it just can't possibly be true. They would leave each conversation with you wishing, longing, for it to be true.